episode 28 of the Farming Vex podcast. This is Michelle Scali, senior editor of Farming Vex magazine. And this is Kristen Harm, associate editor of Farming Vex magazine. Farming Vex magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the season. Kristen, what are we talking about on today's episode? I'm actually quite excited about today's episode. We're speaking with Bill Carson, President and CEO of Otsuka Pharmaceutical Development and Commercialization, Inc., and Kabir Nass, who is the President and CEO of Otsuka North America Pharmaceuticals. I listened to both of these gentlemen speak at two separate conferences um, months apart, and as soon as I heard each of them speak, I knew we had to have them on the podcast, and I'm so excited that they were able to actually come on the podcast together. Yeah, they were pretty uh, they were pretty cool to listen to, so we'll get to their interview right after this quick break. Have you ever wanted to go back and peruse old issues of FarmExec? We may not be able to give you access to the bound book issues we have in our archive room, but we do offer digital versions of each magazine. To view them, visit farmexec.com, hover over the magazine option at the top of the page, and then choose Digital Archive for a page filled with back issues. Podcasters, today we welcome Bill Carson, President and CEO of Otsuka Pharmaceutical Development and Commercialization Inc., and Kabir Nath, President and CEO of Otsuka North America Pharmaceuticals, to the podcast. Welcome, Bill and Kabir. We're happy to have you here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I am so excited to have you guys on the podcast. This has actually been well, now I guess it's over a year in the making. I first heard Kabir speak at a conference two years ago, and then I heard, um, then I saw Bill speak at a conference last year and knew we just had to have them on the podcast. I actually remember Michelle coming back with the idea to have you both on, and she was really excited about the possibility because she was saying how not only insightful you, you both are, but also how personable. So um, Kabir and Bill... Why don't you briefly tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your roles at the company? Thanks very much, Michelle and Kristen. So this is Kabir Naf. I am responsible for all of Otsuka's commercial business in North America. I've been here about three years, came here by way of a roundabout route across the world. The U.S. is actually the seventh country that I've lived or worked in. I spent many years at Bristol Myers Squibb before this. I've worked in medical technology in the past. And I came to Otsuka because of the unique culture that is here and the really important things that this company is trying to do in difficult areas such as mental health. This is Bill Carson. I have been with Otsuka since 2002. I'm responsible in uh, my role for the development of Otsuka's global compounds. I also have a significant role with regards to the digital business. Um, I've been in this position since 2010. Prior to Otsuka, I was 10 years on faculty in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina and at Bristol Myers Squibb in Wallingford, Connecticut for about five years. So both times I heard both of you speak, 
It was centered around digital health and innovation, with a lot of the conversation revolving around Abilify MySite, the first U.S. FDA-approved digital medicine. And I know the company recently made another announcement about Abilify. Could you tell us a little about this innovative treatment and how it works? Abilify MySite, as you know, we worked with our partners at Proteus, um, and to describe it, is a system or that utilizes um, Proteus's um, ingestible vent monitor embedded in an Abilify tablet. It's about the size of a piece of sand and it sits on a cellulose grid. When it hits your stomach, it uh, dissolves and sends a signal to a patch that's worn above it, usually right below the rib cage, and from there, uh, it goes to the cloud and comes back to your phone and to your computer, and it says to you and whoever you decide would like to know that you've ingested your medication. That was the approval for the first digital medicine. When you're dealing with a first-in-class or really first-in-anything, not just pharma, there isn't a leader to follow and learn from. And being the first digital medicine approved by the U.S. FDA, I'm sure that you've faced a number of hurdles. So what was the biggest hurdle or lesson that you each faced and learned through the process? And what piece of advice would you pass on to others looking to be a first in such a highly regulated industry? So that's a great question. And I think you know, the most important lesson, the primary lesson, is one about resilience and persistence. And I'm sure that's not unique to anyone who's trying to do something for the first time, but it's fair to say that over the course of the last five to six years working with Proteus, we hit numerous setbacks. Some of them are public, including the fact that we actually got a complete response letter to our first filing. Many of the others are private ones that we lived through as one company or another because we really you know, we're pioneering something very different, both from a development perspective, as Bill described it, this is a complex system of product and patch and software. The regulators, frankly, didn't really know how to deal with it. Um, you know, our experience, and we've had some of this dialogue with the FDA post the process of approval, is they really struggled with how to categorize this, how to review it, how to balance safety, and so on. And I think persistence, resilience, and a sheer, you know, the open-mindedness to actually go in different directions to acknowledge that you're working on stuff you don't know the answers to, but you're going to have to work collaboratively both within Otsuka and with Proteus and, frankly, with external experts to shape the answers to the problems we saw. Bill? I think that's right, Kabir. I guess one of the things I would say about the um, complete response letter um, was the street basically said, oh, this is done, you know, it's not going to get approved and so forth and so on. And I think our big concern was that the FDA would come back and ask us to do a large 5,000-person, five-year study, and that's not what they asked for. And what they asked for was actually quite reasonable. And these are human factor studies. Our drug, Abilify MySide, is approved for bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, and schizophrenia. And they wanted to make sure that that population could actually utilize the system. 
And one thing about human factor studies is that the agency really wants to know, wants to see that you make changes. We did actually have to make a few changes. One of them was a simplification of the language in the packaging, which we would have only found out by, by having these human factor studies in the appropriate population. I think the lesson, uh, along with the persistence that uh, Kabir was talking about, um, one of the things I would say is patience. Um, I think for us to just, instead of assuming that something negative is being discussed at a regulatory level, it really is them wanting to make sure that they um, make the best decision for the patients in this country and take their time. And they understood, I believe, that they were setting precedent. And, they, and when you're setting precedent for a new product, you have to be very, very careful with regards to um, not moving on that quickly. You also brought in a bioethics consultant and made it a point to work with patient advocacy groups because this is such a new type of therapy. So can you tell us a little bit about that? It actually was a, a panel of bioethicists. Uh, it was one of the most interesting meetings I've had uh, in my career because of what they were bringing to the table. Um, they were not thinking necessarily about the first digital medicine or even about uh, doing something that's first in class. I think um, what they really wanted to do was understand what it meant for patients going forward. Interestingly to me, the most uh, significant finding they came back with was this idea that doctors did not want one more actionable piece of information. And so it's this idea of it's Friday afternoon, you get a, a notification that the patient hasn't taken the medication, then what are you supposed to do? And the second part of that is are you responsible for any outcome? I think that it is a, it's an interesting finding from a bioethicist point of view, but it gives us a sense of um, what the lives of the working physicians are out there as they approach um, this new digital age as far as medicines are concerned and precision medicines. And just to add to that, I think, I mean, as well as the bioethicist, which I think has been a very important part of what we've done, we always work with patient advocates, whatever area of medicine we're working in, because that's really important. Clearly, in this case, there are some specific questions and challenges which we realized we had to address head on. You know, I think when we started, perhaps the concerns about privacy and so on were not as acute as they are now, but to state the obvious, we're working in an environment where there are huge concerns about privacy, who has access to the data that may be generated through a system such as Abilify MySite, what might be done with that data and so on. And we knew we couldn't be reactive to those issues. So we have been trying all the way along to stay ahead of some of those issues. Again, as we get to scale, we'll have to see how some of those play out. But it was very important to us to make sure that we had patients, spoke to patients, had patient advocates at least understand what we were trying to do with my site. I think going along with that as well, um, there was some early idea of the, this whole big brother phenomena um, with regards to that. And I actually have cons been consistent in my response to that, which is I think it really um, points up 
a lot of the stigma attached to mental health care because people were saying, you know, these poor, vulnerable people, you're doing something and, you know, is this big brother? And, in fact, I look at it as if I'm a psychiatrist by training, and I think it's great that psychiatric patients are at the front of the line for new therapies and that, as we were saying earlier, the human factor studies were very clear that these patient populations, schizophrenia, patients with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, can actually utilize the system. And I think that that was really an important thing to find out and help to provide great, uh, a great new therapeutic option for them. I agree. I think it's incredibly important that we recognize this is empowering rather than controlling. I mean, that's exactly, you know, the spirit in which we're doing this, and that's, again, in working with patients and others, that's very much what we want to convey. There were a lot of stakeholders involved in the creation of a truly digital medication, as it was a joint venture with Protea. Bill, one of the things that really struck me when I heard you speak about this partnership early last year was how the technology company would come into meetings with exciting new innovations. And while this was great, especially in their eyes, it actually was more of a headache for your team because it has the potential to mean more legal or regulatory ramifications. And that's it's just the nature of the businesses and the differences between pharma and technology. So as the leader of a pharma company, how did you handle that balance and what tips would you give our listeners who might be in that situation now or in the future? You're you're right. Um, it, it provided us an interesting opportunity to collaborate with Proteus. I think the the most important part of those early years, we really had to learn um, the language of collaboration between the companies. And we also had to get used to the cadence of development. <clears throat> As you know, the cadence in, for pharmaceutical development is actually years. It is not uncommon for us to say, oh, well, we'll start the study and we'll get the results in four to five years. Um, in the digital Silicon Valley world, um, it's, it's constant iteration. So every day it's something new, it's, and that's the basis of what they're doing. So it wouldn't be surprising that you'd enter the room and, and they, and in the last month they've come up with all sorts of really interesting things. As I've said before, for me, we, one thing that led to us being able to come across the finish line was being able to say, let's take a snapshot in time and freeze where we are, and that's what we use to help move through the regulatory process. I think that kind of imagery really stuck with everyone, helped us to understand what we were doing, and helped us to collaborate better. Yeah, clearly, I mean, this is, this is a great question, and it is. Yeah, the tension is going to be there, but what I would say is I think we have evolved together with Proteus to the point that it's a creative tension and we actually get benefits out of it on both sides. We've now been working together for more than five years, and in fact, late last year, you'll have seen that we deepened the collaboration and have actually structured an even more intensive collaboration with Proteus, with a dedicated team of folks from both sides 
who are really driving my site on from a commercialization and development point of view to the next level. And what we've seen over the years is that some of the skills we bring around expertise in manufacturing, around truly understanding the regulatory environment, around now as we get into commercialization, some of the nature of the pair issues and so on, married to the agility, the innovation, the different ways of looking, the fact that there are many people at Proteus who've never worked in the pharma industry and have no desire to work in the pharma industry and can challenge some of our preconceived notions about how to do things is producing really positive energy, I would say. So it requires open-mindedness. Um, there have been times when we've wanted to kill each other, um, you know, at every level of the collaboration. Um, that's not unique to pharma and technology. I can tell you there are pharma-pharma collaborations where that's true as well. Um, but I would say that, you know, we'll speak more in a moment about our culture and so on, but I think the way we operate at Oatsuka, we really have been able to benefit and actually make, you know, the best of two very different organizations and ways of thinking and working um, synergize and come together. I, I would elaborate on that, too. I think you're, you're spot on, but one of the, the, the real interesting aspects about that collaboration is um, how do you uh, hand off back and forth at, and when you make those hand offs? Um, Otsuka has had lots of partnerships through the years, and we had to test our muscles differently in this type of partnership. You know, the question earlier about being the first of the digital medicine, the uh, Proteus had an approved product, and we had an approved product, and we put them together, and that's what we're talking about. I think when you're looking at whatever is the next digital medicine with um, non-approved products that, that are put together, I think you're going to have to have deeper collaboration, more collaboration, more clarity about what you're working on, and, and also um, make sure that that continues in with the regulatory authorities as well. I think the other thing I would say is clearly this experience has given us the confidence to partner with other companies in similar related spaces. So you'll have seen we announced a deal with Click Therapeutics just last month to advance uh, an application that they have developed, again, generating evidence. We believe in evidence-based medicine, so we're going to put that through a, a clinical trial and hopefully get FDA approval in due course for that app to treat some of the symptoms of depression. But really, the, the relationship with Proteus, what we've learned there, how to deal with technology companies, how to adapt some of our ways of thinking to the speed at which software development works, put us in a very good position to actually cement that deal with Click, and we're very excited about that as another strand of our digital strategy. This is actually um, a good transition into another important C-suite topic um, that's made us pretty excited about having you both on here together. Although you're working towards a common goal, you both have slightly different stakeholders and roles within Otsuka. Uh, what's the secret to making the relationship between the R&D side and the commercial side of a pharma company work, especially when you're working on such um, game-changing projects like this? I'll start. Um, a lot of times people ask about the title for my part of the organization, which is Development and Commercialization, Inc., and one of the reasons that is in the title is we wanted to make sure that Otsuka's development organization 
knew that we were working on products to be commercialized. Um, there are many um, organizations where the R&D part of the organization really sits separately. It's behind a wall and it just is a, it's a place of, uh, by itself. We've never had that here since I joined in O2, and um, I think that we constantly are working closely with our commercial products because um, they are one of our stakeholders at the end of the day. If the work that we've done is not commercializable, then we actually haven't really produced something of value for the company. So to me, it's, it's natural. That's just the way we do the work that we do here, and I think that um, hopefully Kabir would say that that's really the way that, that things are done. No, I would agree with that completely. So I think a few things. I mean, first, we are totally co-located, so we're in the same place. And you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, you have no idea whether somebody works from a commercial company or the development company. Um, so that's number one. And indeed, you know, much of the all the infrastructure per se is shared and so on as well. But I think the second is exactly as Bill said. Um, you know, the one of our fundamental challenges in this industry is deriving, demonstrating value to patients, to clinicians, and to payers. And I've had, long had the belief that, you know, discovery and development can't work in a vacuum where they're not actually focused on that from day one. And the best way to do that is to have a commercial and development enterprise working closely together because, you know, even the most wonderful scientific advances, if you can't actually demonstrate clinical value, demonstrate value to patients, demonstrate value to pairs through that entire process, then actually it's not worth investing the money to do that. So I think those shared objectives of really improving patient outcomes in the areas we work in um, is what ties us together. And that applies not just across something like Abilify MySite or Digital Therapeutics, because there you also have the fact that it's novel and that excites people, so everyone's excited around something that's truly different and so on. But even if I look at our so-called conventional business, our business in mental health, our launch for polycystic kidney disease that we did last year, those are only successful because the development and the commercial organizations work seamlessly together. The medical affairs team works under Bill, the commercial team works under me. We would not have achieved the success we've had in our launches or the traction we get without incredibly close collaboration there with the medical team. So, yeah, it's just a... You know, it has to be there, and I'd say here at Otsuka it is there. Yeah, absolutely. We have lots of tenets as far as Otsuka culture is concerned, but one of the tenets is no boundaries. And with that, we've really meant that people work on, in collaborative teams, you work on different types of projects, um, and I think that that no boundaries also really stands up no boundary between commercial and development, that we, we're in this together, and I think that that's just a deep tenet of Otsuka culture. Do any of our listeners follow our YouTube page or saw the video on the website? Bill talked to us briefly about something he likes to call the data tsunami. Um, you, have you gotten this copyrighted yet? I mean, you, you need to get this copyrighted. <laughs> I, I, missed, I, I missed out on the copyright. I wish I had. <laughs> Come on. It's a, it's, a, it's a catchy phrase, and uh, just like you did, when I heard you speak for the first time during the conference and you said that, it got the whole room laughing. But it's actually very serious and a very legitimate issue, especially for pharma companies. 
Kristen, I know we talked about it, too, after you watched the video on our YouTube page. Yeah, because it's really true. Um, there is so much data out there. It begs the question, you know, what do you do with it? Who owns it? Who should have access to it? What legal responsibilities does it come with? So can you guys maybe talk a bit about that and what challenges it poses from your end as a pharma company? Yes. Um, one of it, All of what you just said is absolutely true. I guess one of the big issues from the, in the pharmaceutical companies, especially around research and development, has been unanalyzed data. Uh, so I think that let's start there. And, and now with the increase in data capacity and ability to crunch the numbers, I think that we may go back and find lots of things across the pharmaceutical industry because we're able to analyze data that hasn't been analyzed. The data tsunami, I think we really see that with Abilify My Site specifically in the context of typical data for the pharmaceutical company comes in maybe at most at a week's pace or at a month's pace. With the Abilify My Site, we have data down to the minute. And so in the approximately 500 patients that we did the human factor studies in, we gathered more data in those patients than all the data in all of Otsuka's clinical trials ever done. So that to me is the data tsunami that I was describing. And one aspect that it leads to is how do you um, visualize the data? How do you make it so people can actually do something with it? Because data that's just unanalyzed or just sheets and reams of data is really useless. So you've got to do something with it so you'll be able to say, oh, now I have a better understanding. This gives me insight into X and I can move on that. Um, but you also are correct when it comes to things like privacy. You know, from the company's perspective and from the payer's perspective, what they're going to see is they're going to see anonymized aggregate data. So, and that actually is to help protect um, patient safety, but we also then have to have a way, um, given some of the rules around data and being able to remove people's data, such as is required in the GDPR, we have to be able to um, help patients take their data out as, as necessary. So you have to build up a gigantic infrastructure to manage data, especially when it comes into in, in the way that it does um, around a digital medicine, but you also have to be able to make sure to protect patient privacy as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Bill, and I think you know, the way you characterize it is helpful because on the one hand there is you know, what we might term the traditional data the pharma companies have had and generated for a long time, continue to generate commercial, clinical trial data, all the stuff that we buy, like everyone else, we buy lots of market data and so on and so forth. So there's one piece that's common to all of us, which is how do you really make sense of that? How do you actually use the vastly increased computing powers, machine learning capabilities to actually make sense of that you know, do segmentation better, manage your clinical trials better, and so on. And we're, yeah, we like to think we're doing some unique things in that space, but essentially those are the sort of issues all of us are faced with as pharma companies of a certain size. 
what Bill characterized though as something like my site and potentially when we get into other digital therapeutics, producing access to a whole new tsunami of data and there first ensuring the patient clearly owns the data. It's the patient's data. We're very clear on that. Patient's data. Other people only use it with permission of the patient and that's a clear part of the MySite application. But then what can you do with that? And what other data sets ultimately are we going to need to marry it with to achieve perhaps some of the predictive power or some of the power in terms of actually understanding these diseases at a population level that actually we can generate value for ourselves and for payers ourselves. So that's a, you know, a, a newer area, an area we're just starting to, to scratch the surface of, very exciting, but is going to require, as Bill said, new disciplines, new capabilities, new infrastructure for us to be able to do it well. So we're going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, as Kabir spoke about earlier, we want to really touch on the culture of the company and how, to, and, and how you make your employees always feel supported, always learning, always balance the growth of growing as a company but still being nimble in a close-knit work environment. So how do you guys do it? How do these leaders in your position balance making sure their company is expanding but also not lose a culture that fosters innovation and gives their employees the ability to grow and follow their passion? Okay. I think that specifically with regards to uh, bringing innovation into the culture of the company, it has to be done in two different directions. It has to be done from top down as well as bottoms up. So we actually have fostered the sense of innovation specifically on the development side around how do we do clinical trials better, more efficiently, utilizing the latest technology, um, electronic informed consent, a full uh, electronic clinical trial master file um, since 2017. But from a company-wide perspective, we have had two years of an innovation competition um, with significant participation across the organization. The teams have actually been represented both commercially as well as developmentally um, on the development side in in many ways. It's, it's really been great to see how they've come together to um, really foster innovation at a level of what they're doing. So I, I think on, that's been a big help for us with regards to making sure that the organization um, embraces innovation in what they do. I, I agree with that. And I, th I think a couple of other things we should remember. We are a Japanese company, and Osaka, though it is a, a significant public company in Japan, clearly operates with a philosophy with a long time scale. We clearly... You know, we come from a very strong family-oriented company, a family company for the first three generations, and really a long-term scale about being in business forever and doing the right thing forever, very committed to healthcare. So that gives us a sense of perspective, sense of balance, a sense of comfort that we're here for a long time. We, Yes, we do issue quarterly earnings, but we don't live for our quarterly earnings, which unfortunately is sometimes the case for public companies. So that's one element. I think the second, another strand of this culture is it's very non-hierarchical. And that's a trade-off. That's a trade-off when, for Bill and me, which is, you know, either of us could go out in the corridor and say, you will do this, this, and this by the end of this week. 
and we'd get laughed at because <laughs> that's not the way things get done in Otsuka. The way things get done in Otsuka is people actually have a passion, they lean into things. As Bill said earlier, there are no boundaries, so we expect people to step outside of not only their apparent defined role, but also, frankly, their comfort zone to get involved in other things and so on. So it does really genuinely create a culture of creativity, of doing things differently, a culture where doing my site seems like a perfectly normal thing to do, a culture where persevering with our next phase three trial for polycystic kidney disease because we'd made a commitment to those patients and we wanted to get that drug through makes perfect sense. Um, We're not always the most efficient at how we get there, but what it does result in is an extraordinarily engaged team across what we measure and what we see and what we live daily. And, you know, at the same time, because we're focused on good medicine that produce good outcomes for patients, you know, a growing business. When we're lucky enough to get a drug that works, and thanks to Bill and his colleagues and our colleagues in Discovery, we have that. You know, we understand the importance of getting that to as many people as quickly as possible. So it's a whole set of different perspectives around our culture that come together that makes it, I think, very robust and really focused on innovation. Both of you have a long tenure in the industry. I'm sure that when you first started a medication with a digital sensor, that wasn't something that many thought would be possible. So how have you seen the pharma industry change? What are the biggest uh, challenges facing us right now? And how has Atsuka and the industry evolved its position to include digital therapeutics along with digital medicine? And then finally, what do you predict the landscape will look like in 10 years? I I like the easy questions that we're getting. I think that you're absolutely correct. When when we started with Proteas, um, it was very out-of-the-box thinking. I think that one real strong aspect of what has changed is it is no longer out-of-the-box thinking, that we all, especially even including the pharmaceutical industry, have been swept up in the fourth industrial revolution. It's the digital age. We're in it, and it changes everything. I I think um, if you think about the power of what you have in your cell phone from a computing perspective, it's more powerful than supercomputers from the early 1970s. Um, I think that we don't necessarily sit back and think about that, but what does that do? It changes the way you approach developing medicines. It changes the way you think about clinical trials. It changes the way we used to think personalized precision medicine was way off in the future. And we have so many things now, which so many new drugs, so many new therapeutic areas, which are incredibly precise um, as far as how they target patients precise in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do a generation ago. Um, that changes how you look at commercializing the product. That changes how you look at researching the product. If you, if you have a genetic defect that you're addressing with a medicine, you can do a very precise clinical trial with a 
smaller number of patients and get to the market more quickly just by how it's done. So it really has been transformative with regards to what we do. Um, if I put on my future glasses, I think that the uh, where we're going is probably going to be large data sets that already exist. And these would be your big genetic companies like 23andMe. I think your big data companies like Amazon and Google. And I think your insurance companies. And somehow those three types of entities will come together and they will approach the pharmaceutical companies like Atuka and say, can you partner with us to look at X in this particular condition? So I think that um, that. Uh, so it's not a specific product that I'm thinking where we're going. I think it's going to be a new process that the pharmaceutical industry and pharmaceutical research and development will tap into. Um, and the good thing about it is I think that we will come up with some very interesting solutions for um, patients and consumers. I, I, I think, the, again, to, to pick up on the question on what Bill said, clearly the pace of change in our industry is more profound now than it's been for a long time. That said, it's amazing how hard it is to predict anything in 10 years' time. So let's remember, had we had this conversation 10 years ago, then what are arguably just the biggest conventional breakthroughs, immuno-oncology or oral cures for HCV, neither, nobody had heard of either of those 10 years ago. I'm not even sure the phrase immuno-oncology existed 10 years ago. So yeah, even in what we do conventionally as an industry, it's incredibly hard to predict. You know, so what will emerge in terms of gene therapies, other engineered therapies, and so on, that's, that's one whole area. I agree with Bill. Clearly, the ubiquity of smartphones and all the power they bring and the way people are increasingly reliant on them for living much of their day-to-day -day life, that has to be integrated to a significant degree into healthcare. And I think in particular, when you look not just in the U.S., but you look on a global scale, when you recognize that countries like China and India are never going to build a primary care, I mean, they're going to bypass entirely those 70 to 100 years of building primary care and building big infrastructure for healthcare. We're going to have to find a way where we deliver solutions to patients using mobile phone technology, using infrastructure, using that. So I think that's one piece. Clearly, the extraordinary amount of data and the ability to process it much more efficiently and much more quickly and make connections between different data sets. And as Bill said, there are clearly players who have not historically been in healthcare who have some of that ability to process and make connections in a way that the pharma industry itself will never, ever have. We're just in a different business. So I think there will be different coalitions I think you will see that many different players in our industry look different. I think pharma companies will look different. I think insurers will look different. I think PBMs will look very different, and that might be as soon as next year <laughs> if the administration has its way. Who knows? Um, and you know, I, I think at least for some patients in some areas, we will see that transformation. And I think, you know, it's interesting, I was a, at a um, – a talk a, a few weeks ago where people were talking about telehealth and, online, yeah. and people said nobody talks about telebanking or 
online banking anymore. That's banking. That's what you do. We all go online to do our banking. So, you know, when do we stop talking about telehealth? When was actually just seeing a remote psychiatrist become as normal as walking into the office? And I think for the next generation, that will be the case. Um, similarly, accessing all your own healthcare data at the click of up will seem normal. Whereas to our generation, you know, extracting even the simplest medical record from your physician, you know, is a pretty painful process. So I, I think these things will be, you know, whether it, where, where the tipping point is, I'm not quite sure. But 10 years, I'm sure it will look profoundly different. It's so interesting that you just said that about telehealth because I actually used telehealth for the first time this week. And I even tweeted about it. I'm like, oh, I used telehealth for the first time. And it was actually really convenient and really nice. And, but you're right, I don't do that with my online banking. So I think that that's right. an interesting. I, I don't, I just am, I'm doing my banking. Like, that's a very interesting perspective. Yeah. I, and I, I do believe, I, I agree 100%. Um, things, things are changing at a pace that we would have thought of as being so unpredictable even five years ago, even at the beginning of the time we started with Proteus. Um, one thing that's really out there, which I actually think has great promise, is these embedded sensors. So there's this whole concept of houses and rooms and locations where you won't have to wear a Fitbit or an Apple Watch. The sensor will be in the room, and the sensor will pick up your heartbeat. The sensor will pick up ketones on your on your on your breath. Um, the sensors they actually are looking at things like um, I can tell by the gait, your gait, that you've had a stroke, and it's just taking a picture of you as you walk. Um, so those types of things are amazing, sound fantastic, but are almost with us right now. I mean, we're right there at the edge. And that's the way that we've never been able to interact with patients um, from a physician's perspective or interact with patients from a company, a pharmaceutical company's perspective. And I think that those things will be transformative. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's a key insight because historically we've depended on that brief moment of interaction between the patient and the physician to tell us everything we know about the patient. Right. Now we have the ability to know a lot about the patient. The patient has the ability to know a lot about themselves through the 99% of the time they're not in front of the physician. Cool. And that's what's really important. Yes. Well, Kabir and Bill, thank you so much for your time today. We're really just so happy that we actually had a chance to sit down and talk to you both. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now it's time for this week's leadership tip from Pharma Execs. Bill Carson, I'm the president and CEO of Otsuka Pharmaceutical Development and Commercialization, Inc. And my leadership tip is actually quite brief. Be authentic. Kabir Nath, uh, president and CEO of Otsuka North American Pharmaceuticals. Stay humble and keep listening. Thank you guys for listening. 
We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, or on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director lisa.henderson at ubm.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at todd.baker at ubm.com.